Welcome to Verso, an arts and culture podcast from Phillips. I'm your host, Beth Lissick. On each show, we bring together two guests from the art world to have a live, socially distanced conversation about what's on their minds right now. Today, my guests are the award-winning journalist Katia Kazakina, who's been covering the art market for over 15 years, and J.P. Anglin, deputy chairman and worldwide co-head of 20th century and contemporary art for Phillips. So, J.P., can you tell me how you got into the art world in the first place? How did you get here? So I am from Maastricht in Holland, where there is a fair that was my godfather was one of the co-founders of that fair he was in oriental art and as a young boy i loved to hang around that fair and help him out and go around town hanging flags and it was quite a a national or local national affair and so i i I was i i liked the art world a lot but then i there was an exhibition of andy warhol at the ludwig museum in cologne And once I saw that, I got really fascinated by contemporary art. So my godfather got me a job at Sotheby's in Amsterdam. Uh, And after a year, I wasn't certain whether, first of all, he didn't give me a full-time job. And secondly, I wasn't certain whether the auction house was something for me. But then a job came from Christie's in London. And to go from Amsterdam to London was like, oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) So... um, and that was the plunge, basically. So I actually studied business. I didn't study art, but I, I sort of for myself read all the art books that they had to read in when you was Gombrich and all that stuff when you do um, art history. But it was the fact that I could go to London and be in the art world mm-hmm. while all my friends were going to London into banking. <laughs> That's, Little did you know that, I, that that business degree would do you pretty well in the art world. Yeah. But I didn't, I thought like, you know, watching it, looking at spreadsheet the whole life, that must be horrible. You know, it's so much better to look at paintings. And it was the London of Charles Saatchi, Boundary Road and the YBAs. And so it was a very exciting time to be in England. Thank you. And Katya, what about you? How'd you get on the art beat? I grew up in the Soviet Union and I came to the States actually as a political refugee back in 1990 with my parents. And uh, when I, in my childhood, I grew up in Leningrad, St. Petersburg now. So I studied uh, at the Hermitage as as a child. You know, there were weekly program on art history and you started in the basement, you know, of the Hermitage with the antiquities. And then you ended up years later up on the top floor with the Matisse dancers. And that's where contemporary, that's where art history ended in Russia, in the Soviet Union. There was nothing past Matisse, basically. (laughs) And uh, I mean, then it was social realism, but there there was no really such thing as contemporary art. And so, but but, but I grew up in, in, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was very much, you know, there was no like real entertainment other than more classical and and books and philharmonics and and museums. And and so that's what you did. And, uh, you know, my mom knew a lot of artists. She was kind of amused at the time to some of them. And and then that's just kind of in my upbringing and in my bloods, in my heart, so to speak. 
I um, just always was interested in it and you know, dated artists, you know, married to an artist, like it's just part, part of who I am. And so when I, <laughs> when I became a journalist, it was always like an interest. That's what I wanted to cover, but not really an art market. I didn't know of such a thing, like such a beat existed. And so there was an opportunity to do it at Bloomberg and I jumped on it and, uh, it, and it's been amazing because, you know, because the art market, of course, is, is a whole other beast, right? And it's uh, it, anything can turn investigative in a second. And uh, that sort of attracts me. And so you have this part and also the aesthetic draw of, you know, that I get to write about and see usually these incredible works of art and uh, make discoveries of emerging art. And, and it's just so, I don't know, just so satisfying, you know. Yeah, you just immersed in all levels in this yeah, world. Yeah. yeah, aesthetically, intellectually, it, it's, 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 it's a great beat. Okay, let's get into 2020 for a minute, a year unlike any other. What surprised you? Did anything not surprise us? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's obviously hear Katya's view. I think it, the, the surprise is that it was such a roller coaster and that it, that it had such a pleasant outcome at the end of the day. I think that, that that if you saw where everybody was standing in April compared to where everybody ended up in December, was a real surprise at the end, how strong and resilient the market was. I mean, I would agree with that, I guess, just to kind of put it in the context of the pandemic, right, the expectations were very low and the art world were heard, right? Like we're herd animals and we go to the same fairs mm -hmm. and the same auctions and it's like the it's kind of a herd mentality and not to have these events to be just gone right overnight was very tough for people to figure out like how do we go forward how would to conduct business and so the fact that the auction houses are functioning galleries are functioning you know people expected a total bloodbath right and it didn't happen thankfully but as I was just looking up this report by Art Tactic, Sotheby's, Christie's, and, and Phillips, down 26% on the year from 2019. You know, Phillips, you guys actually did better than others. You know, you, you were down, what, like only like 13% on the year. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Christie's, wow, that was like over 30 down. So, you know, I, I don't think it, it's a rosy picture. I think that the positive thing is that you know, the market is existing, right? And that the big sales are happening and exhibitions are happening and museum shows are happening that in, in a sense that that's how the art world and the art market are resilient, but not without pretty big sacrifices. And, and also basically it's not so rosy, I think. Mm. I have two observations. I, I totally agree with you, Katja, that the, the big changes, I, I like your comment on hurt mentality and, and we, are, we are a hurt. And we all move, I always say, we're traveling, we're a traveling circus and we all go from Miami to Basel, to London, to New York, to LA, et cetera, et cetera. And we all think that is extremely important. And suddenly we all realize that actually you can do sales without traveling to Miami, without traveling to Basel, without traveling to London, you know? So the big change there was that all that social pressure was not there and including all the costs that come with that. So although, you know, the sales were down, so were the costs. I think at Philips, we're, we're generally a nimbler house. We always have to be able to maneuver quickly, 
we were already doing smaller catalogs than our competitors. Now we just decided to do one catalog and then the rest of all the contents, you get much better content online. So it's sort of a hybrid. And then a lot of the time and resources went into all the online entities and all the auctions going online. Yeah. So I think that's really what it did. And I think that the most interesting things of last year, in a way, was this this constant innovation that you're trying to do on your platform, whether it's on the app or on the website, uh, in order to make interesting content. Could we talk about one particular sale from 2020? Can you tell me about the Amy Sherald sale that happened? Yeah, I think the Amy Sherald sale, I think the the real surprise maybe was how low the estimate was. And are we talking, this is the bathers that you're talking about? Yes. The estimate was 150, 150,000 to 200,000. A very low estimate. <laughs> exactly. And we know that Amy Sherald's estimate was low, but we also knew that it would do extremely well. And, and before the sale, we had many people calling us that they wanted to guarantee the painting, which we had agreed that we would not recommend. And I know both Katya and I were there at the opening of the Amy Sherrill show at Hauser, and it was absolutely incredible. I've never seen a busier opening than that. What what happened here in in Chelsea was basically happening in London when when White Cube showed the the love of God to Damien Hirst's skull. Uh, but there you had to buy a ticket. <laughs> you know, this was was just the opening and it was just incredible. Uh, and we knew how few paintings she paints a year, how little the earth is. So she paints like about, what, 12 paintings a year? I think it's made. about 10 paintings or 12 paintings a year, yeah. I mean, when I was doing research covering this, I was thinking... Oh, you know, how many are there? How many have sold at auction? Let's see. And there was only one before. So that was only the second artwork by by her to come up at auction. So if you think about what happened to her since, you know, the Michelle Obama, you know, portrait was unveiled, you know, her career completely exploded and she's become one of the leading artists in the country and and internationally demand is is huge, right? And all the publicity and everything, all the acclaim. But in the market, the works are very rare. So it was the first slot. And I, I'm just looking at my notes. It started at a hundred thousand and then I don't even know, I lost count. I have eight eight bidders at least and it was from Asia it was like David Norman who is like an imp and mod guy you know expert was bidding so many people from so many different profiles really of, of the market you know it was just very electric and then it ended up hammering at 3.5 million dollars and it took forever I think the amazing thing was I can't remember the number of phone lines but I, I think it was close to 20 or, or around that figure and that was, you know, and then we had online bidders. It, it was pretty insane. You were bidding. I, you were bidding on it. I was bidding on it. Yes. That was, I mean, everybody, but I think the whole, you know, our entire staff was bidding on lot one. This wasn't just people that wanted to collect African-American art. I think that she has touched a certain nerve with her paintings. Because you know when an artist is hot, you have a certain number of fixed clients that always come out for the the hot items. But this was just some very seasoned, classic collectors and people sort of really making the plunge into 
look, this is an important artist. So the hot topic right now is, of course, NFTs. And I was wondering if you could each give me just your elevator explanation of what an NFT is. Uh, So it's a non-fungible token, if I pronounce that correctly with my Dutch accent, which basically means it's a file based on blockchain technology that is not hackable and you're the only one that has it. So it is, it's supposed to be rock solid. Unless you forget it. <laughs> Unless you forget the code to enter it, I guess. It's screwed and then you have no access to your $69 million artwork. <laughs> and you're stuck with it forever. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely has beaten Megan and Harry as the main topic of the day. It really is what everybody is uh, speaking about after the sale that that happened last week. And it's it's really tied into cryptocurrency. Of course, the real big news just a few days ago, Christie sold a work of NFT uh, piece of digital art by Beeble for $69.3 million. It sold to a fund in Singapore. We don't know who is behind that fund. Although now some names, actually one name has come out, which is very interesting. And um, and yeah, it was paid with cryptocurrency. So, so many questions and so many possibilities, right? For the art world, for a whole community of artists who, you know, are not traditionally seen really in, in, in the more rarefied world we are talking about. And, uh, and so... There are also a lot of concerns, obviously, about the technology. But, you know, I think that a lot of people are talking about how and when and what it means. And, you know, uh, the question, obviously, is like, how do you view this stuff, right? How do you experience it? I read something that really struck me in an article, a quote from someone who said that, you know, NFTs are entirely for the benefit of the crypto grifters. The only purpose the artists serve is as aspiring suckers to pump the concept of crypto and, of course, to buy cryptocurrency to pay for the minting of NFTs. Kind of scary stuff on some level, right? And promising at the same time. Yeah, I think that you, you know, from a Phillips perspective, on the one hand, you really need to look at this as, is this a great opportunity? On the other hand, when something out of the blue makes such a high price, you need to be extremely critical. I think that there's no doubt this could be a collecting field. I have absolutely no doubt about that. It might be a completely parallel world to the art world that we know. Because of technology, there are new sports developed, like drone flying. You know, that's also in the world of sports, but it doesn't have much to do with the NFL. I think here it's a little bit similar. You need to see what the opportunities are, but you also, at the end of the day, as Philips, we need to give advice to our clients and share our knowledge. And so we need to get that knowledge before you can advise. And I also think that, you know, we want to have long-term relationships with clients. So you also want to be certain that you're not just part of some kind of PR stunt. But, you know, also, GP, another thing for you, I was thinking, you know, the auction houses have so long been trying to figure out how to scale, right, the business and how to reach new clients, new generation, new all of this. And so what I found intriguing was that how many many bidders there were, and they were all like by, except for three people, they were all new to Christie's. Yeah. 
So it's like a whole, I mean, isn't that exciting? Well, yes and no. And like every strength has its weakness. To me, it would have been more exciting if it would have been a lot of known clients, because that would have meant that your traditional collectors would be interested in these NFTs or in, in this work by Beeble. Now what it's telling me is that there's indeed a different a parallel mm-hmm. universe, clients that that we generally don't know, we or Christie's are generally don't deal with, but in their world, they all know and deal with it. Right, because these these have been being bought and sold on other platforms, right? Before the Christie's auction. Correct. And so it makes total sense if tomorrow we would say we're going to sell Pokemon cards, 94% of the clients that would come to us would be new clients, you know, so because that's not what we generally do. So I was really not surprised by that number. I think the question is, are these 94% clients, can they be converted into buying something else? So I think this is about three things. It's about cryptocurrency. It's about a platform. And then there is also something still, which is called, it's about art. And so I, I, we need to look at all those things in order to understand and how we should decide. And I think that if we want to do it, we want to do it well. And otherwise, let's not do it. Uh, JP, uh, you you had a very a very cute post on Instagram over the weekend where you you put pictures of lots of tulips in uh, in relation to to what happened with NFTs. What was that about? Being Dutch and coming from Holland, the first thing you learn in school when you talk about Dutch history of one of the first things it's 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 all, in Holland. Everything is about the 17th century and obviously tulip mania. And at that time, basically tulips were costing. The price of a house and here we have a work of art that costs the price of an i guess a beach property in in palm beach or in the hamptons we bought tulips on saturday and there is a real business for tulips um, and there are whole platforms and auctions for tulips when a tulip costs the price of a house then you have to maybe ask yourself this is sort of not totally reasonable anymore you know, you have to ask serious questions, but that doesn't mean there isn't a market. But you just have to, if it's too good to be true, it usually is. It's a bubble. I mean, really, the, the, the yeah, parallel so you, is that you, it's, exactly. it's about a bubble. Yes, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a market. It just costs $10 a bunch, right? A bunch in, of Hol- in, Holland, in Holland, definitely. Yeah, here it's a little more expensive. <laughs> I think they're asking now, but it's about 10 bucks a month. Uh, it's about a bunch. It's Yes. I just bought one. You know, I yeah. love tulips in the spring. Who doesn't, right? So I, I think that's what we learn from it. You it's know? the and value. Then, you know, it's a question of value, right? What is it's the right a question value? Of value? It's a question of value. That's, and hype that's and bubble right. and, and the market. And, and that the market endures. It's true. The market has endured for centuries. Thank you both so much. It was really fun talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, Katya. It was great to see you. Great, great chatting, really. Okay, bye. Thanks for tuning into Verso, an arts and culture podcast from Philips. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. Bye for now.